0: Happy Monday and welcome to The Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, we are lucky enough to be able to welcome back uh, Karen Tumulty, a columnist, political columnist for The Washington Post and the author of the new bestseller, The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, The Woman Who Invented Ronald Reagan. So Karen, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. It's so great to be here. Do you have a good Mother's Day?
1: I did, I did. A quiet one which is uh it's kind of the definition of a good mother's day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, we had a quiet uh, Mother's Day here too. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad to hear that. So there's so much to talk about uh, today. I just I I, I wanted to uh, encourage uh, readers of the Bulwark to uh, to go to the site today to read Jim Swift's outstanding piece about the craziness of the Virginia GOP convention. I can't really summarize it. It is it's sort of the sum of all nuttiness. Um, what the Republican Party has become in the state of Virginia. They used to be rational Republicans in Virginia. Now they're having this drive-through convention, which um, to say that it's bizarre and has weird little twists and turns is putting it mildly. So I would I would strongly encourage people to do that. So uh, Karen, I wanted to start off by, and I want to get to your book about Nancy Reagan, but we just have to talk about this moment that we're in where the Republican Party is about to purge. Liz Cheney and replace her with Elise Stefanik, and so let's, as a uh, as a palate cleanser, let's listen to uh, some of the spin on this. Uh, let's 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 go to Chris Christie first. Chris Christie explaining on uh, ABC to uh, George Stephanopoulos uh, why this is a, probably a good idea to get rid of uh, Liz Cheney. Um, she comes
2: from a place where it's much more likely that she'll bring a much more moderating voice on policy Elise- into that caucus leadership. Than what Liz Cheney did, who voted ninety percent of the time with Donald Trump. So you have the right qualifier there, though, on policy. I, well, of, well, George, <laughs> of course, I say my words very carefully. Okay, um, that's what you—that's what you guys pay me to do here, right? It's the to say it the right way, and 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 that's what she'll do. And I listen. I've known Elise I I campaigned for Elise in her first in her first campaign. She was the youngest woman elected to the House of Representatives, and um, I think Lisa will bring some real good things to it. I also like Liz Cheney. Um, And I think Liz is smart and tough, but I think Liz is doing what she wants to do. I don't think Liz wants to be in leadership anymore because once she won the vote earlier, she continued to press this issue publicly in a way that was antagonizing the people who were against her. And I think you don't have an entitlement to be in leadership, but you do have an entitlement to be in Congress.
0: Okay. So let's just start with Chris Christie, who uh, is, uh, he's trying to spin this. I, I, I love the idea that somehow Elise Stefanik is going to be a moderating influence because I, I think it's pretty obvious that that her elevation has nothing to do with policy or ideology or any of those votes whatsoever, does it?
1: No. And also her her current Profile has nothing to do with her past record. She has become a full-fledged member of the whatever Donald Trump wants party.
0: Well, it's not just whatever Donald Trump wants; it's what he wants on the election lie, uh, and and she's been willing to to spread the the election uh, conspiracy theories in, in really a I won't say a uniquely shameless way, but but in a particularly shameless way. Uh, you know, I think and, the good and, word is opportunistic. I think the word is opportunistic. I think the word is also unscrupulous. It's, I mean, what really distinguishes her is how unscrupulous her ambition is, and how malleable her principles are. Because this is a young woman who was really the most likely to succeed, the f- face of the Republican Party, uh, you know, back in twenty nineteen, Paul Ryan himself. Wrote a glowing piece in Time magazine saying, Elise is not just the future of the Republican Party. She is the future of hopeful, aspirational politics in America. Well, apparently she's made a different choice.
1: Well, and again, she is a perfect fit, quite frankly, for what the House Republican Conference has become, which is don't pay any attention to anything I used to say I believed in. Right now, I will do anything that Donald Trump tells me to do.
0: Well, that's that's true, and there's a, there's a lot of that. But what I really find extraordinary about her, and why I keep coming back to what the particularly shameless way is that, you know, she's she's pushed out, you know, the, the you know suggestions about Dominion voting systems. She went on Steve Bannon's show the other day. Uh, She said some things about the Georgia vote that were so obviously untrue that the folks, the Washington Post fact checkers gave her a chance to correct it, like obviously with the passage of time, you know, you're wrong about this. And instead of acknowledging that she was wrong about 140,000 votes cast in, you know, illegally cast in Fulton County, which is ridiculous, she's actually doubled down on it. So you know, it's a distinctive kind of, uh, of of toadyism for a woman who is obviously intelligent, who had a completely different career path at one time, and so it doesn't matter that she's more moderate or that she voted against the tax cuts or that she that she voted against other things that the Trump has done. As long as she's with them on this election thing, it it's okay. What I, I really love though is that this this spin from people like Christy that. Well, the real problem with Liz Cheney is she keeps talking about it. You know who keeps talking about it? <laughs> it's Donald Trump talks about it every day, and it doesn't register. It's it's like this cognitive dissonance. Liz Cheney talks about it, you know, that we ought to take January 6th seriously. That's bad. That's obsessive. Donald Trump talks about the fake phony election every single day, multiple times a day, and he's still the great leader.
1: Yeah, the the whole idea that, you know, that they are talking out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, on the one hand, uh, they have all bought into the lie that the election was stolen. And then on the other hand, they keep saying, let's move on from January 6th. And those two ideas are just not compatible with each other, especially since Uh, you know, the Republicans have done everything they can to shut down any investigation of what happened on January 6th and why. And I think that is fundamentally what Liz Cheney keeps coming back to.
0: Well, Adam Kinzinger was uh, also on television yesterday, and he was on Face the Nation with John Dickerson. And uh, he he came up with an interesting analogy. This is uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger.
3: Yeah, look, it's incredible. So Liz Cheney uh, is saying exactly what Kevin McCarthy said uh, the day of the insurrection. She's just consistently been saying it. And a few weeks later, Kevin McCarthy changed to attacking other people. And so I think what the reality is, is, as a party, we have to have an internal look and a full accounting as to what led to January 6. I mean, right now it's basically the, the Titanic. We're like, you know, in this, in the middle of this slow sink, we have a band playing on the deck telling everybody it's fine. And meanwhile, as I've said, you know, Donald Trump's running around trying to find women's clothing and get on the first lifeboat. And I think there's a few of us that are just saying, guys, this is not good, not just for the future of the party, but this is not good for the future of this country. We're four months after January 6th, an insurrection, something that was unthinkable in this country And the message from the people that want to get rid of Liz Cheney is to say it's just time to focus on the future and move on. Like this was 10 years ago and we've been obsessed about it since. It's been four months and we have so many people, including our leadership in the party, that has not admitted that this is what it is, which was an insurrection led by the president of the United States, well deserving of a full accounting from Republicans.
1: Well, I must say the analogy with the Titanic doesn't quite work for me because no. Donald Trump is not on deck; he is the iceberg. And <laughs> uh, the difference too is that the Titanic at least had a few lifeboats.
0: Oh uh, well, see, I'm not sure that, whether that analogy works either because I, I'm not totally convinced that this won't work in the near in the near term. I, I mean, I, I just want to throw out the idea. I'm not making a prediction here because predictions are. I think they're, they're very, very dangerous. But I do think that people ought to at least sit back and think, what if this works? What, if, what if, in fact, this party behaves this way, embraces this lie, goes along with this guy and wins back power? What and- happens to the country?
1: What just uh, we are seeing the template for what happens to the country in Arizona right now. And you're just going to see that in state after state after state after state, which is are these sort of uh, phony audits of legitimate votes. Um, You've got to wonder no matter who wins in 2022 or 2024, um, you know, it's it's going to be challenged.
0: Well, it is it is gonna be challenging. I don't want to get too dark here, but I mean there there are there have been a number of articles, people saying, Well, what would a Republican House do um about the Electoral College in twenty twenty-four? Um, but the point that Adam Kinzinger made, um, and he just tweeted out this morning uh that he had warned, tried to warn uh Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy on a conference call, the, uh before January sixth, that, you know, continuing to spread these conspiracy theories might lead to violence and, and that McCarthy blew him off. But his point is is I think somewhat relevant that Kevin McCarthy himself was willing to call out the president right after January 6th and since then has been walking it back. And really what Liz Cheney is saying is not that much different than what Kevin McCarthy is saying, but apparently it's just the uh, the, the 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 acceptable line is, but you just need to shut up about it. Yet, Yes, there was an attempt to overturn an American presidential election, but come on, get over it. What do you have to keep talking about? It was like, oh, four months ago.
1: Well, you, you hear that all over the place. I mean, the, the day it happened, Lindsey Graham was saying, I'm, I'm done Wait. with him and he's not, he, he can't quit him.
0: So I, I have a little item in, in my newsletter today. And, and I, I don't know whether, how significant it is, but I, I do think it's important to pass on one of our really, really smart friends uh, takes a story that has been reported. Uh, this is not breaking news, but then he connects the dots. And he starts with the fact that it back in March, Kevin McCarthy hired a guy named Brian Jack to run his political operation. And Brian, and Brian Jack had been Donald Trump's White House political director. And Brian Jack was directly involved in helping set up the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. Remember, uh, Congressman Mo, Mo Brooks spoke at, uh, at, that, uh, at that rally. He said he was invited to speak by... Uh Brian Jack. So that Brian Jack called him from the Trump White House and and encouraged him to speak at at this rally on January 6th. And then Kevin McCarthy turns around and hires the same guy in, in, in uh, March, knowing that he was pushing the stop the steal stuff. So does this contribute to his incredible walk back and everything? But here's the here's the kicker: is, you know, Liz Cheney has been pushing for the creation of an independent 9-11 style commission that would really focus on the attack on the Capitol. And this is one of the real breaking points between McCarthy and Liz Cheney. And so our our, our friend had emailed us and said, uh, look, so uh, undergirding the whole Liz commission thing is the fact that not only does Kevin McCarthy himself have a conflict given his call with Trump on, on January 6th, but his top political guy would also potentially be a target of the investigation into what happened on January sixth. So I think that's kind of a little bit of a tidbit, a little bit of a connecting the dots to keep in mind as we watch the uh, looming defenestration of Liz of Liz Cheney.
1: But you know, Charlie, don't you think that that you know the only thing that makes Kevin McCarthy explicable? is that he is just completely focused on whatever he thinks can get him back the gavel in 2022. Yeah. And, you know, the the, the consequences beyond that, uh, I think, are something that, you know, a lot of Republicans led by Kevin McCarthy are think, thinking like, well, we'll deal with that later
0: no i think that's exactly right and and i don't think so it's it's not that complicated um, you know his focus on the ambition what's interesting are the number of commentators who think that well the job of the leaders and people like liz cheney is to be is solely to be pushing this uh, you know partisan message and like why is she talking about this rather than attacking the biden administration as if the elected officials including the leaders don't have a somewhat weightier responsibility to the Constitution as elected officials. You know, what I'm getting at is that is that we've sort of internalized the idea that the partisan the partisan ambition, of course is going to trump any responsibility to the actual Congress or of the actual Constitution or what's good for the country. It just sort of assumed and, and therefore if you put the Constitution in the country ahead, well then obviously you need to be thrown out of office. You, you know obviously you don't understand your role, all the smart people writing for you know the usual suspect publications.
1: Yeah, it is sort of the, and again, it's just a completely opportunistic agenda right here. And it is, everything is like whatever gets us over the finish line in November of 2022. And by the way, the Republicans should be feeling pretty good about that right now. If if you look at the the number of Democrats who are either, Democrats in swing districts who are either retiring or thinking maybe they want to run for the Senate or governor uh, you know the Republicans right now are just very much feeling the wind at their back.
0: They are that's why I keep saying that the it, it, it may be comforting to say that this is the Titanic but um, don't be so sure of all of that. I think the other thing that we've learned is that you can have people who will change their position 180 degrees put everything they've done into a memory hole and, and pay, and there are no consequences. There's no political price to be paid for some of this behavior, at least not so far. And I think that's the, you know, that, that's the warning. Of course, I mean, the, the, the counter to that, of course, is what Kevin Williamson writes in national review is like, guys, do you do know that Donald Trump lost this election? Right. I mean, he did lose and how weird it is that that this party has decided that it's going to continue to you know link itself so closely to a guy who was just rather decisively defeated in this election
1: and you know what cannot be people can't be reminded of often enough is this is also a party that has won the popular vote exactly once since 1988 this is not about expanding their reach are growing their appeal. I mean, this is a party that is sort of, sort of eating itself.
0: Well, they are, and um, they don't seem to care about all of that. So, let's talk about Nancy Reagan and a couple things about Nancy Reagan. I, I, Here is something I've been thinking about over the weekend. Joe Biden, when he gave his speech, when he spoke seemed to be laying out an agenda that was the antithesis of Ronald Reagan, that was dismantling the whole Reagan revolution. And yet, I guess I want to get your sense about whether or not Biden is the anti-Reagan or whether or not there's some commonality. And a lot of our listeners are going to not have any idea what I'm talking about. Because I, I, I saw Trump not as a direct line from Ronald Reagan, but in many ways, a you know substantial divergence? There's something about the optimism and the personality of Biden that strikes me as more like Reagan than Trump was ever like Reagan. So give give me your give me your sense about Biden's relationship. Is he the repudiation of Reaganism or are there some commonalities? How do you feel about this?
1: Well, I, I mean, certainly people are looking at his basic philosophy about the size and role of government. And that would be the antithesis of Ronald Reagan. But where I I don't, you know, the people who make the argument that, you know, Reagan was a direct line to Trump, I don't buy it. Because don't forget, Ronald Reagan won 49 states in 1984. And also, his his brand of conservatism was... Aspirational, it was optimistic. And it really, he had been connecting with people who became known as the Reagan Democrats since, you know, he was going around the country as a spokesman for GE in the late 1950s. It, you know, it was just the whole philosophy behind it. And I don't think he, you win 49 states by appealing to people's sense of grievance. So, um, but they're living in very different moments. Um, You know, one of them coming out of the 60s and the 70s and, you know, different. Also, we're just in a different kind of crisis here. Whether, you know, Bidenism is going to be proven to be the answer, uh, you know, we'll know that pretty soon.
0: Yeah, we are going to find out pretty soon. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and, 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 you know, what, what another thing, I, and I mentioned this on a previous podcast, sometimes when I read books like yours, I'm overwhelmed by the thought that the past wasn't really that long ago. It, it may be a different world, but that we're still living under the shadow of it, that many of the things that we're talking about have their roots in the 30s and the 40s. You, you, you know what I mean here. I think maybe, and maybe that's just a, you know, a, maybe that's just a symptom of growing older. So um I, I, I would, I've been talking about uh the role of the Young, Young America's Foundation which is uh, sort of a successor of 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 YAF um and it's headed by Scott Walker who says that he's going to use this organization to restore conservatism. He's become very, very Trumpy. But this is an organization that actually bought the Reagan Ranch, So they kind of wrapped themselves in the cloak of Reaganism. And I noticed that your book goes into some detail about how Nancy Reagan actually hated Young Americans for Freedom, which I found completely amazing. So can you talk to me about this? Because because I think everybody in the Young Americans Foundation or Young Americans for Freedom, these are two different organizations that merged with one another, think of themselves as the purely Reagan and the fact that they own the Reagan ranch. I mean, this is like, and you're pointing out Nancy was not a fan.
1: That's right. You know, I really hope that people, one of the challenges in writing a book like this, and I'm so, so gratified by the incredible critical response it's getting, but I do need to sort of challenge people to set aside everything they think they know about this very controversial first lady and this marriage and her role because i did find that her as much as she styled herself this kind of pre-feminist traditional spouse she had just an enormous impact on her husband's rise on very specific policies when he was president including with people like jim baker and george schultz who were smart enough to realize how valuable she could be but after Reagan is incapacitated with Alzheimer's, you know, the ranch was the place he loved more than any spot in the world. But he reached a point more quickly than they thought he would, where he couldn't go to the ranch anymore. It, it was a torment. You know, he couldn't ride, it, he would get sort of terrified, as Alzheimer's patients do. So she puts the ranch on the market and it sort of languishes. And then Young Americans for Freedom, I I don't know if they changed their name by then or not, comes along and buys it. And immediately it becomes sort of a competitor for the Reagan Library when it comes to, I mean, their fundraising appeals were using Ronald Reagan's name, Ronald Reagan's image. Both Reagans had signed um, documents sort of claiming that the rights to his name and image and her name and image belong to the library and the foundation. And there were actually a lot of cease and desist letters going back and forth. Really? And, um, you know, they they came close to legal action, but she did very, very much regret selling the ranch to them. Uh, She also would sort of tap the brakes on some of the other things that people would want to do uh, with Ronald Reagan's name and image. For instance, in the 90s, there was an effort by some young House Republicans to knock FDR off the dime and put Ronald Reagan's image there Mm -hmm. instead. And Nancy Reagan surprised a lot of people by standing up and saying, my husband would not support this. Uh, My husband, the FDR was his most admired president and he would not want to see this happen. And it, you know, it stops it immediately.
0: Huh? That 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 is extraordinary. So the subtitle of your book is "The Woman Who Invented Ronald Reagan," and I want to and I want to come back to all of that because you really yeah, described the, the
1: headline on a review. It was not. It was not. The well, I'm,
0: I'm sorry I'm, on, on a, on a review. Okay. It's I'm, I'm it's,
1: not, it works for me.
0: But. Well, and it does capture what how you describe it. But but you mention this the the Alzheimer's and and this is a question that it comes up over and over and over again, and and it's going to come up during the Biden presidency. It's sort of you know out, out there which is the question of, you know, how with it was Ronald Reagan in the final years of his presidency? What was the level of his acuity? Because there's a lot of folks out there that believe that, that Nancy Reagan played a quasi Edith Wilson role, that she was kind of running things. She obviously was always influential. But what is your what is your sense about that timeline? We know that there was the Alzheimer's. Um, I, I, I get the sense from, from your book that you are pretty confident that, that that didn't set in until after the presidency, that he was still really with it until he left office. But tell me well, tell me what your take is.
1: Well, she does, Nancy Reagan does almost single-handedly run the rescue effort out of the White House during Iran-Contra. And I, I think I've well-documented that. Mm-hmm. But that was in part, because something that was characteristic of Ronald Reagan, you know, not just Ronald Reagan in 1987, but Ronald Reagan in 1967, which was this, uh, you know, this optimism and also this, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. This is all going to turn out just fine. Uh, the Tower Commission report shows that, in fact, Iran Contra was a, for your, your listeners who are too young to remember yeah, yeah, were basically selling arms to Iran as yeah. hostage payments for uh, ransom payments for hostages. And then the white house was illegally diverting the money to, to the Contras in Nicaragua. Um, people could have gone to jail and mm-hmm. you know convicted for this stuff. But Ronald Reagan, it was the tower commission report and subsequent investigations. It was very much because he was not, on top of details, the way he should have been. But this is, again, I think, goes back to a management style that he exhibited throughout his career. So did the Alzheimer's, you know, was there something going on organically by then? Probably. But if you read his diaries, if you read his um, written correspondence, if you read his notes, and I have read all of them as has Douglas Brinkley, as did Edmund Morris, uh, there is no evidence in his handwritten, like daily diary um, entries, of any kind of um, deterioration. I mean, he is he is an older man by the end of his presidency, but he is not a different man.
0: This is, this is important. I mean, the fact that, that he did keep those, those diaries, I think is, is just, you know, we're, we're probably not going to have that with other presidencies, unfortunately. So historians are not going to have that, that trove of information. So let's just talk a little bit about, um, the, the woman who invented Ronald Reagan. You know, what may, what comes, becomes very, very clear is, and I think you, you've said it this way very directly is that he trusted everybody. She trusted nobody. So they really made a very powerful team. But they were very different in that respect.
1: That's right. That's right. And I really, I go all the way back to trauma in both of their childhoods. It explained why the two of them were just so closely bound together. But um, she did have, you know, as clueless as she could be about her own image, she had a far superior nose for trouble than he did. She had much sharper judgment about the people around him than he did. I mean, somebody like James Baker told me that. He said, you know, her instincts were better than his. And um, when she, she very rarely set foot in the West Wing, but if she was not happy with somebody or something, they all knew it. And if somebody was not in her favor, they tended to be gone. She is one of the reasons Ronald Reagan went through a half dozen national security advisors. But the shrewder, smarter people in the administration, and I would count among them, not only her closest ally, Michael Deaver, the deputy chief of staff, but James Baker, uh, George Shultz, the secretary of state, they understood that Nancy Reagan was an incredibly valuable ally to have. And if you could convince her that something was in the president's best interest, you had a good shot of getting Ronald Reagan aboard. And I remember seeing in one oral history, William Clark, who was one of his national security advisors who tangled with Nancy, saying, You know, we always said the troika in the White House was, you know, Jim Baker, Deaver, and Ed Meese, the most ideological of them, he said the real troika was Baker, Deaver, and Nancy.
0: So what was the relationship between James Baker and Nancy Reagan? Because that certainly would not have been predictable at the, at the beginning of the Reagan presidency.
1: No. In fact, Baker, everyone assumed Ed Meese was going to be the mm-hmm. chief of staff because he had been Reagan's chief of staff in Sacramento, In fact, Mies was circulating organization charts that were showing how they were going to run the White House. But um, both Reagans had concerns. One, they thought Mies was pretty disorganized. Uh, Nancy did not trust the ideologues, the people that she said would go over the cliff with the flag flying. Um, And James Baker, at that point, barely, barely knows the Reagans. He's helped out with debate prep. Uh, But he really comes from George H.W. Bush's world. In 76, he had been chairman of Ford's campaign against Reagan for the Mm -hmm. nomination. So it was an extraordinary thing that he should be tapped to become White House chief of staff. And he told me and he has said on many occasions he was there because Nancy Reagan wanted him there.
0: Hmm. Okay. why? Why did you want him there?
1: Um, she, she was comfortable with him. He sort of presented well. He you know, comes from sort of blue blood Houston. But I think what really attracted her to him most was his pragmatism. And she was absolutely determined that um, she defined success, I think, in a much more conventional way than her husband did. You know, she she wanted Ronald Reagan's greatness to be not just recognized by the right, but, you know, recognized by all the the naysayers in Georgetown who considered him an amiable dunce. Uh, And so I think Baker was part of that, but mostly I think she just liked his pragmatism. And the same thing was the case with George Shultz. And she becomes an incredibly important ally for Shultz in you know setting up the circumstances under which Ronald Reagan can reach out to Mikhail Gorbachev and at a time when his administration was really populated primarily by hardliners hawks who really thought there could never be any such thing as a working relationship with Moscow and again this is like a role that people don't necessarily associate Nancy Reagan. Well,
0: that that and and that's of course I think the real the real strength of your book is that you point out that she was not just his enforcer, um, you know, on personnel things, but that she played a a, a crucial role in the in the public policy. So let's let's look at the other side of this though, the, the 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 personal and the family side, because you you go back, you know, into you know who what Ronald Reagan was. Ronald Reagan was really the the, the product of a very dysfunctional family, an alcoholic father. Um, maybe his aversion to conflict came from all of that, but Ronald Reagan was a product of the Midwest and of a, and of a deeply broken family. So how did she play into that in terms of the partnership, in terms of being complimentary? She had the more confident, she had more confidence than he did, um, in terms of conflict or talk to me about that.
1: Well, one thing, yes, she was. As Edmund Morris, the biographer, told me, she she was a street fighter, uh, which he was not. But I think that in Ronald Reagan's childhood, the he 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 was a much more solitary figure than people than his public persona would suggest. As, as gifted as he was at connecting with the country, he was a guy who was not. You know, he didn't have a you know, Bill Clinton Rolodex that was miles long and he didn't like to just sit there on the phone chatting people up the way Donald Trump did. He sort of wanted to be by himself. And when he was a child in this very difficult family circumstance, it was really his adoring mother who created that sanctuary, that that place that he needed to go to sort of recharge uh, and really nurtured him. And you can see a little bit of that reflected in his relationship with Nancy Reagan. In fact, they called each other mommy and daddy. Um, mm. In fact, at one point he, his nicknames for her, one of the ones that keeps showing up in these passionate, I mean, like hot love letters to her, <laughs> uh, is mommy poo pants. So um, okay. it's, you know, this, but they were so, tightly bound together and so dependent on each other because Nancy Reagan also comes from a deeply, deeply traumatized childhood. Her her mother essentially abandoned her. Her mother was an actress, abandoned her for six years. She has to, at the age of 14 or 15, arrange her own adoption by the stepfather that she adores. Um, she just had a lot of the, the, she's an anxious personality. She has her flaws. She has her demons. I don't flinch from any of those in the book. Right. But she was precisely what Ronald Reagan needed.
0: So one of the more interesting um, relationships, conflicts was the, the, and you describe it, the Reagans and the Bushes didn't get along. And there was something about, I think you've described Barbara Bush's, triggering a lot of things with Nancy Reagan. So talk to me about that, about why they didn't get along.
1: Well, first of all, I, it's Nancy in the Bushes who didn't get along. Yeah, I I'm think. sorry, Nancy. i well, right, I'm Reagan right, was,
0: right. was fine yeah, with them, yeah. you know. Um,
1: uh, so as George Will said to me, sometimes it's harder for the spouses to let go of things than it is for the really? principals. Yeah. And in this case, I think Barbara Bush and Nancy Reagan Never let go of the very bitter fight for the nomination in 1980. And Barbara Bush, who could dish it out as well as take it, sort of never let people forget who she thought should be in the Oval Office and which of these two people should be out attending funerals of foreign leaders. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, Barbara Bush, even though she too had a closet full of designer clothes, is just Bathed in glowing press coverage, she is America's grandmother. Everybody mm-hmm. loves her. While you know Nancy Reagan is known as, you know she's seen as the ice queen. Uh, you know the one of the nicknames, the hairdo with anxiety. <laughs> so she resents that about Barbara Bush. Uh, Barbara Bush can trace her ancestry back to the Mayflower. People see the Reagans as coming out of this you know parvenu culture of Hollywood. And I also think um, the Reagan family, four children, two from his first marriage, two they had together, is also deeply, deeply, deeply dysfunctional. And then you see the Bush family, which is just, you know, all the kids are around and the grandkids are around. And that too, I think, is a, you know, is something as well that, that kind of really does trigger uh, Nancy Reagan's anxieties and feelings of inadequacy. In fact, she, she wrote at one point, all I ever wanted was to be a good wife and mother. And I guess I succeeded more at one than at the other. And in the dedication of her memoir, she writes to Ronnie who always understood and to my children who I
0: hope will understand. So what happened there? What did happen there?
1: Um, I think that the Reagans, they were an epic, epic love story, but they were so closely bound together that there just wasn't any room for anyone else. And their children, unfortunately, become the collateral damage of all of that. And you can see that going right into her funeral, where both Patty and Ron talk about this, this closeness. And on the one hand, you know, as Ron says, one thing my mother knew, which was how to love, but how, you know, they were a closed circle unto themselves. Michael didn't even go to Nancy's funeral.
0: Michael did not go to Nancy's funeral. Now remind me, um, because, because it is a mixed family, Michael. Michael is,
1: is this, is the son of. Ronald Reagan and Jane Wyman.
0: Okay, right. So she was his stepmom and they didn't have a relationship. Uh, he, st- he, yeah. he,
1: he had a lot of um, sort of difficult feelings growing from the fact that he was adopted. Um, and, you know, also he would reveal later in life that as a child, he was sexually abused. Um, so it's, you know, th- there was just a whole lot going on in, in that family.
0: So on on the on the uh, Nancy Reagan Bush um, story, uh, d- do I remember this correctly? That both Nancy and Barbara Bush went to Smith, which is odd.
1: <laughs> well, except that Nancy Reagan actually graduated from Smith, and Barbara Bush dropped out in her freshman year because she wanted to marry George H.W. Bush. Well, guess which of the two of them gets offered an honorary degree by Smith and which of the two of them is declined when, her, when she tries to get one? Sure enough, they, you know, again, oh, really? it, yes, it goes back. I found everything, in fact, in the Smith, uh, Smith College files where in 1982, a point where Ouch. Nancy Reagan was just getting battered in the press, Uh, Her social secretary, another Smith graduate, reaches out to the college and says, you know, wouldn't you like to invite the first lady and, you know, to do an appearance on campus and maybe you could give her an honorary degree? And Smith just flat out turns her down. And then along comes Barbara Bush when she's first lady. And guess what? (laughs)
0: Oh, that 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 had to rankle. <laughs> that, this one you don't need to explain this how how that played out. Um, you know when I when I mentioned earlier that sometimes you know the, the the past is not as far away as we think. You know we're talking about the influence of these folks right now, and you start out though with the roots in old Hollywood. It it, it does feel like a different world, and the Ronald Reagan coming out of that old Hollywood. I mean so. Really, you know, we're 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 talking about, you know, just tell me about a little bit about the values of old Hollywood and and how and how it shaped Ronald Reagan because, uh, you know, I guess it, it, Ronald Reagan was a man who was very much shaped by the 1930s, and so you know, here we are in 2021, and we're still debating some of the values of a man whose real values who was formed in the 1930s. Have I got this right?
1: That's right. He, he comes to Hollywood in 1937. He was a sportscaster from Iowa. And that is a, a time when the studio system is still going. You know, th- they could essentially write the narrative and the press would just, the Hollywood press would just sort of lap it up or the, you know, reigning gossip columnist of the day would sort of write whatever you wanted. Uh, Nancy Davis, a not very accomplished Actress comes to do her screen test with MGM in 1949. The whole screen test is set up by Spencer Tracy, and you can read the book and find out why he cared uh, in a way where she can absolutely not fail this screen test. Um, So she is too offered a, a contract. And one of my favorite single bit of trivia I found out that I have in the book is that because MGFM, offer, the biggest powerhouse of Hollywood studios, offers a contract to Nancy Davis. They turn down another actress named Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Uh, probably the worst decision ever made by any Hollywood <sighs> studio. But um, but both of them come from again this era, where number one, it brings to them a very very sophisticated understanding of mass media that then you see play out on television. I mean, Ronald Reagan could, he was just the, the master of television, like no politician before him had ever been. And all of that, I do think, comes out of the the imagery. I mean, I mean the, the Reagan presidency, in fact, is just, you know, what sticks with you are, are the images. Um, a lot of people would say, you know, His critics would say a lot of these images were at odds with the actual values and the policies, but boy, they were masterful at that.
0: So... Basically, we we take the string back that if it wasn't for Spencer Tracy, we wouldn't have Nancy Davis. If it wasn't for Nancy Davis, who becomes Nancy Reagan, we wouldn't have Ronald Reagan. So it all traces back to Spencer Tracy. Right.
1: And, and, And even Reagan would point out, you know, when he meets her, he is at a low point of his life. His first wife has gotten bored with him and walked out. His movie career is coming to an end. His, he is literally shows up for their first date on crutches, a broken man, because he's broken his leg in six places. His, his spirit is in what he would describe as a deep freeze. And he himself would say, if Nancy Davis hadn't come along when she did, I would have lost my
0: soul. Hmm. Hmm. Karen Tumulty, thank you so much for the book. And thank you for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it.
1: I so, I so enjoy being here. Thank you. It's been my honor.
0: (laughs) And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.